This purple candle solemnly reminds us of the hope God's people had in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, born to redeem them from their sin. Israel's hope was fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. Now our hope remains in God's promises as we anxiously anticipate Jesus' return in glory. The Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, beginning in the first verse. It's located on page 744 of the Pew Bible. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Return to the scripture we read with Blake this morning, Daniel chapter 7. As we look at this passage this morning, the message will be a, a bit different. We're going to look at, we will look at a lot of scripture this morning uh, to, to understand Thank you. To understand uh, the passage 
in Daniel chapter 7. Before we do that, though, let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you. As always, on the Lord's Day morning, bringing before you our neighbors, our families, bringing before you the people around us that are hurting, that are in need. Our Father, we come as your priests. You called us to be prophets to this community, to take your word, your gospel into our neighborhoods, into our homes, into our work. But Father, you've also called us to come before you and be priests for the world around us. Our Father, this morning, we pray for Shirley Kenyon, Tyler's aunt. Our Father, we pray that you would speak to her as only you're able to speak to her. Bring the power of the gospel to her life. Our Father, we pray for Priscilla Turner that you would cause her to live in these days with great anticipation and even joy that she might, Father, say with David, yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We pray for Jim Bennington this morning. We thank you for him and for his testimony. We pray that you'll continue to strengthen him our Father, we pray for Billy Griggs in the same way. Give him strength for these days, both physical and spiritual. Our Father, we pray for Tyler this morning as he preaches at Hickory With. We pray you would fill him with your spirit that he might bring your word in power to that church. Now as we open your word here in this place, our father, John Sartell, cannot speak so that it will make any difference in our lives. He cannot speak so that we're changed from the inside out. But we've heard your voice in this room in the past. We're not the same people we were. You've changed us by the power of your word in our lives. And we pray that that would continue this morning. And maybe for some, maybe for the first time, we pray now that you would make it plain to us, open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Jesus, the Son of Man. Question. What happened in the incarnation? John tells us very succinctly in that wonderful first chapter. The very first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, several sentences later, he makes this statement. And the Word, what? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the wonder of wonders. Nothing had happened like this since the creation of the universe. The creator 
had become flesh. That is the reason for the great celebration of Advent. It's not primarily about the cross. That's the focus when we come to Easter. But in the Advent season, the season of Christmas, God became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. That's our celebration. Question number two. What term did Jesus, what term did the incarnate Son of God use more than any other term to describe himself? Think about that for a minute. What term did he use more than any other term to describe himself? Savior? Lord? Son of God? The term Jesus used more than any other by far to describe himself was son of man. Why? Why would he deliberately use that phrase more than any other to describe himself? That brings us to our first point this morning. I want us to look at scripture and see when deity celebrated the humanity of the son of God. Those are not just religious words. That's a real sentence. It's an important sentence. When deity celebrated the humanity of the Son of God. Why did Jesus use this term more than any other to describe himself? It's very simple. For all eternity, for all eternity, he had been the Son of God in glory. Go back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was with God and the word was God. There was there was the son of God. In John 17, it's on, in your scripture sheet. Jesus is, is just before the cross, just before the resurrection, just before his mission is completed. And he's speaking as if it had been completed. And he's speaking to the father. It's a very intimate conversation, wonderful conversation. And in the middle of that conversation, he said, and now father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, the son of God, is praying and he's looking back to the eons of eternity when he's been with the father. And he's praying as the son of God and son of man. And he says, now glorify me with the glory I had with you. He's remembering that glory from ages past. What happened at the incarnation? The eternal son of God also became the son of man. In John 3.13, and all the gospels use this term. Very early in the gospel of John, Jesus said it this way. No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the son of man. Where did he get that term. Was he just simply saying, I'm human now? I'm the son of man? Where did he get that term? He got that term from Daniel chapter 7. We're not going to look at the whole passage. It's a strange passage, isn't it? All these strange beasts. But it's not hard to understand. If you'll look with me at verse 9. As I look, thrones were placed. And the ancient of days took his seat. 
His clothing was white as snow, and his hair, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came from out, came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. Mark that. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and for a time. I saw in the night visions. Now, listen to this, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the sun, like a son of man. And he came before the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. There are four nations and four kingdoms that were represented by those strange animals. There was a lion with the wings of an eagle, a bear with three ribs in his mouth, a leopard with four wings on its back, and then a most dreadful looking beast with ten horns and iron teeth and teeth of iron. These beasts represented four kingdoms that would rule the known world between Daniel's day and the coming of Messiah. Those four kingdoms would be Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Each one succeeded the other. Those four nations ruled the world from Daniel's day to the time of Jesus. Those kingdoms were raised up and then in time destroyed. Every single one of them came to an end. That's what that's what Daniel's is that's what that vision is prophesied. All these nations are going to fail. In contrast, then, look what happens. In contrast, as these nations are being destroyed, a son of man. This is this is a prophecy. About the incarnation. There's going to be a son of man in glory. And he's going to be a king. And he's going to own a kingdom. And that kingdom in contrast to these other kingdoms. Will never ever ever be destroyed. It will last forever. So. Jesus in Galilee. In Judah. When he was preaching, when he was referring to himself, the son of man, he reaches back to this great prophecy. And everyone in Israel knew that prophecy. Everyone. It was popular. This is what the Messiah will be. This is he's going to be a great king and a great kingdom. And Jesus was saying to the people of Galilee in Judah, I am that son of man. That's who I am. Why did he use this term more than the son of God? He had been the son of God for eternity. It was only in the incarnation. It was only in the incarnation that he became the son of man. He was celebrating by using that term. He was actually celebrating 
the incarnation. He was celebrating the humanity of the Son of God. The angels, the, the, the angels in glory, the Father had always known him, known him as the Son of God. Now, incredibly, incredibly, wondrously, he was the Son of Man. I'm not only the Son of God, now I'm the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite term to describe himself. Let me ask you a question. It's one that I ask friends of mine from time to time. Do you like your name? Do you like your name? It'd be interesting to go through here. I've been surprised over the years. I've done this for decades. And I've discovered that about half the people I ask don't like their name. Now, if that's you, I don't understand why you don't change it. I mean, if you don't like it, change it. But Jesus liked his name. He liked the name Jesus. God had named him. Remember when Gabriel came to Mary? We read it this morning. Gabriel said, you shall call his name Jesus. Gabriel went to Joseph, repeated that. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The, the name Jesus means Savior. Jesus liked that name. It was God-given. Gabriel was just a messenger. He was carrying the message from God. God had said, you'll call you call this son of man, you'll call him Jesus. But that's not the term he used most of the time when he referred to himself. Son of man. Look at this passage. Look at these passages and you see when deity celebrated the humanity of the son of God. Secondly, I want us to see in these passages when the Son of God claimed deity as the Son of Man. So here was, here was a person. If you, you'd seen Jesus, he didn't have a halo. He didn't have wings. He, he didn't shine in glory except on the Mount of Transfiguration. He, he, he was a man. He looked like a man. And yet, as he spoke himself of himself as a son of man. He claimed deity. Look with me at Mark chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This is the first time in Mark that Jesus uses the term son of man referring to himself. We're also going to look at the same thing in Luke, uh, the same episode. It's a, it was the first time in Luke that he used the term son of man about himself. But look at verse 10 of Mark 2. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Luke says it this way. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This paralyzed man had been brought before Jesus. And everyone, there was a huge crowd inside the house. In fact, they had to, remember, they had to tear the tiles off the roof to lower him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus did the unexpected. Everybody's looking and they said, we're going to see another great miracle. This man's just going to walk away. And Jesus looked at him and he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, pretend that you're the paralytic lying there and you want to walk. You know, you've been taken to Jesus. You've heard that he, he makes paralyzed people walk. 
And instead of saying, take up your bed and walk, he looks at you and says, your sins are forgiven you. You would be mightily, I would be mightily disappointed. I want to walk. But of course, Jesus was doing something much greater. Immediately, the religious leaders that were there said, no one can forgive sins but God. And Jesus looked at him. Here he is. He looks at them. And he says, that you may know that the Son of Man, and pulls that out of Daniel, that the Son of Man, this Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your bed and walk. He did what only God could do. Only God can speak by fiat and a person becomes instantly well. Only God can do that. And that's what Jesus was saying. So that you may know I have authority to do this, so that you'll know who I am. I am the Son of Man, and I'm the Son of God. When the Son of God claimed deity as a Son of Man, he did this throughout his ministry. Sometimes you will hear people say uh, that theologically liberal people that have forsaken Scripture, you'll hear them say, and I've never understood this, You'll hear them say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. <laughs> it's on every page, literally. If you look again at Matthew 16, we've talked about this passage often in our study in Luke. And this is Matthew's version of it, Matthew 16, 13 to 16. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, he was really saying, who do people say that I am? But he was just reaching back. It was constant. Do you see it? He was constantly referring to himself as the son of man. And they said, some said John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That was the answer that Jesus wanted. He didn't look at Peter and say, no, 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 don't call me deity. I'm just a man here. That's why he started out saying, who do people say the son of man is? Peter said, you're the son of God. And Jesus didn't say, Peter, don't say that. You can't say that about a man. He said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You just don't know what a great truth you've spoken. I'm the son of God from eternity who is now the son of man. And then we'll just look at one more time when Jesus actually, as the son of man, claimed deity. He was before the Sanhedrin, the night before the cross. An inquisition was taking place led by the high priest. And all these witnesses had been brought in. In Matthew 26, verse 52, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And how did Jesus answer? Look at it. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power 
and coming on the clouds of heaven. He was quoting Daniel. He was saying, I am the son of high priest. I'm the son of man from Daniel. You want an answer? I'm the son of God. I'm the son of man from Daniel. That's who I am. You look at these passages and you see when deity celebrated the humanity of the Son of God. Secondly, when the Son of God claimed deity, we've seen when the Son of God claimed deity as a Son of Man. Thirdly, after his ascension, Jesus ascended after the resurrection, after he was ascended, after his ascension, Jesus was the Son of God and Son of Man in glory. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you see him go into heaven. Imagine being there. And here the Son of Man is. He's the Son of God. And he begins to ascend. And these angels say, that Jesus, this same Jesus, and, and the word this is there, this Jesus, not another Jesus, this Jesus, the Son of Man and Son of God. The NIV says this same Jesus. King James Version says this same Jesus. Emphasis upon this Jesus. The ascended Son of God went home to glory also as the Son of Man. In Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John is confronted by in a great vision. And he sees Jesus. You begin reading with Revelation 1 verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. As you read that, and I ask you, I could have asked this morning. We could have read this. And I'd say, who is that? Every person in this room would say, that's Jesus. We understand. That's who it is. But what does John say? John says, he's seeing Jesus in glory. And the wonder of it is, he's like a son of man. He's not an angel. He's not an angel. He's a son of man. That's what he sees. He's seeing what was prophesied in Daniel. He sees Jesus in glory. And what does John say? He's harking back to Daniel. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this? You say he's the eternal son of God that became the son of man. And, and he used this term more than any other. He celebrated that. It was a, it was, it was a great celebration for Jesus. It seemed like a, a celebration of all of heaven. The Son of God had become the Son of Man. 
And he constantly, on every page, as the Son of Man, claimed dead. And when he went back home, he didn't lay his humanity aside. What do we do with this? Well, some of you would say that the main reason that he took on flesh is to redeem us. If God would redeem men from sin, the Redeemer had to be one of us. It couldn't be an animal. It couldn't be some other being. It couldn't be an angel. Man had to give an account before God. The Redeemer had to be one of us. A man had to bear the sin. A man had to bear the guilt. A man had to suffer the punishment under the justice of God. We've seen that previously. But I want to stress something else as we close this morning. I want us to understand that Jesus embraced, the Son of God embraced the physical. He didn't take on flesh. Think about that. He didn't take on flesh, accomplish this redemption, and, and, and then just throw away his humanity. This was very important in the first century. There was, in Greek thought, the, the, the very popular thought, and it affected the early Christians, powerfully affected, in a bad way. In Greek thought, what, whatever was spiritual was good, but the physical was bad. The physical was always evil. And for a time, for a period in that first century, uh, there were groups of Christians that would say, well, he couldn't. Have, Jesus just had to be an apparition. He couldn't have really become physical because the physical is evil. And the great fathers of the early church fought this with a passion. Athanasius was one of the, the great fathers of the church. And he was known in speaking out of the church councils concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. But he loved the humanity of Christ. And he made this statement. He said the dust of the earth is at the right hand of the Father. Think about that. I love it. The dust of the earth is at the right hand of the Father. The Son of Man and Son of God. When he ascended, he was body and spirit. When he ascended, the redeemed Christ went home with the scars of our redemption. What happens when we die? We say, well, our, our souls go to be with the Lord. Is that it? Are we just soulless? Or are we just bodiless people out there with God? No, the Son of Man and Son of God, our Redeemer King. In his resurrection, God promised that he would be the first fruits. Jesus said, when I come back, there's going to be a great resurrection. What, what, what will happen? The loved ones we know that in the last year, two years, three years, four years, whenever. He said they went home to be with the Lord and we will see them again. There'll be a day when Jesus returns 
in the souls of those that have gone before us. Their bodies will be raised. They'll be given bodies. Body and soul. That's what the incarnation is saying. Jesus embraced the physical. He just did not throw it aside. One other passage. In Luke 7.33, Jesus is speaking and he's talking about how the Pharisees rejected John the Baptist and rejected him also. And he said, you just can't be satisfied. In, in Luke 7.33, he said, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread. That means he was fasting and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man comes eating. He's not fasting and he's drinking wine. And you say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. You know, John the Baptist probably looked more in some ways, in ways that we would think, ways that, you know, and we're thinking wrongly when we think. This. But we would look at John the Baptist and say, you know, he, he was more spiritual than Jesus. He was all the time fasting. He was all the time going off in the wilderness for days and weeks and praying and praying and praying. He looked very spiritual. And here Jesus comes and he's eating and drinking. And he, he's the son of God. What does that say? We're not more spiritual when we pray than when we eat. We're always body and soul. We're one person. We're not less spiritual when we play football. We're not, we're, we're, not, we're not less spiritual than when we're in church. Let me put it to you this way. My friend, very early in my ministry, there was a young man that worked as an intern uh, with me one summer. His name was Carl. And he... Bless, he was always so zealous, always zealous, always wanted to tell people about Christ, always wanted to be out there doing. And so we're sitting at our kitchen table and Janet has prepared this beautiful gourmet mushroom soup. And Carl looks at me and says, Janet's behind him in the kitchen. And he said, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't have to eat? He said, you know, just think of all the time we waste eating. He said, right now, John, we could be out there telling people about Jesus. We could be out doing this or that for Christ. And I looked at Janet and turned around and was looking from the kitchen. And I looked at Carl and said, you don't know how close you are to death right now. You're about to die. And I said, Carl, I said, we're not. We're not less spiritual when we eat. I said, God gave us bodies that need nourishment, but he gave us taste buds to enjoy that nourishment. He had this dichotomy. Well, when we're out here, we're really spiritual, and when we're doing this, it's not spiritual. Jesus went home to glory with a body. With the dust of the earth. And he went home in glory.
What do we do with this? Someone sent Amy Carmichael, a great missionary in India, sent her, sent her uh, several hundred dollars and said, and I'm guilty of this. I've actually done this, you all. And said, this should be used for evangelism only. This should, this should be used for the saving of souls. Well, Amy Carmichael wrote a letter back to that person. One cannot save and then pitchfork souls into heaven. There are times I heartily wish we could. But souls in India, at least, are more or less securely fastened to bodies. Bodies can't be left to lie about in the open as you can't get the souls out and deal with them separately. You have to take them both together. Here's how Paul said it, and here's how we'll close. And if you're a young person, if you're a teenager here this morning, I hope you'll wrestle with this. I wish like everything somebody had told me this when I was a teenager because I lived in, a, I lived in two different worlds. Here was my Christian life. Here's my relationship with Christ. And here was my life out in the world, you know, hunting and fishing and playing ball or doing whatever. And I, I couldn't get them together. In Jesus, they come together. Paul said it this way. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then in speaking to Carl, Paul said it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God.